This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 11 Come in, says the woman, and I did. She says, take a cheer. I done it. She looked me all over with the little shiny eyes and says, What might your name be? Well, Sarah Williams. Whereabouts do you live? In this neighborhood? Uh, no, I'm in Hookerville, seven mile below. I've walked all the way and I'm all tired out. Hungry too, I reckon. I'll find you something. Uh, no, I'm, I ain't hungry. I was so hungry I had to stop two miles below here at a farm, so I ain't hungry no more. It's what makes me so late. My mother's down sick and out of money and everything, and I come to tell my Uncle Abner more. He lives at the upper end of town, she says. I ain't ever been here before. Do you know him? No, but I don't know everybody yet. I haven't lived here quite two weeks. It's a considerable ways to the upper end of town. You better stay here all night. Take off your bonnet. Uh, no, I says. I'll rest a while, I reckon, and go on. I ain't afeard of the dark. She said she wouldn't let me go by myself. But her husband would be in by and by, maybe in an hour and a half, and she'd send him along with me. Then she got to talking about her husband, and about her relations up the river, and her relations down the river, and about how much better off they used to was, and how they didn't know, but they'd made a mistake coming to our town, instead of letting well alone, and so on and so on, till I was afeard I had made a mistake coming to her to find out what was going on in the town. But by and by she dropped on to Pap and the murder, and then I was pretty willing to let her clatter right along. She told about me and Tom Sawyer finding the $12,000, only she got a twenty, and all about Pap and what a hard lot he was, and what a hard lot I was, and at last she got down to where I was murdered. I says, well, who done it? Well, we've heard considerable about these goings-on down in Hookerville, but we don't know who twas that killed Huck Finn. Well, I reckon there's a right smart chance of people here that like to know who killed him, but some think old Finn done it himself. No, is that so? Most everybody thought it at first. He'll never know how nigh he come to getting lynched. But before night they changed around and judged it was done by a runaway nigger named Jim. Why, he... I stopped. I reckon I better keep still. And she run on and never noticed I had put in at all. The nigger run off the very night Huck Finn was killed. So there's a reward out for him, three hundred dollars. And there's a reward out for old Finn, too, two hundred dollars. You see... He come to town the morning after the murder and told about it and was out with him on the ferry boat hunt and right away after he up and left. Before night they wanted to lynch him but he was gone you see. Well next day they found out the nigger was gone. They found out he hadn't been seen since ten o'clock the night the murder was done. So then they put it on him you see. And while they was full of it next day back comes old Finn and went boo-hooing to Judge Thatcher to get money to hunt for the nigger all over Illinois with. The judge gave him some, and that evening he got drunk and was around till after midnight with a couple of mighty hard-looking strangers and then went off with them. Well, he ain't come back since, and they ain't looking for him back till this thing blows over a little, for people thinks now that he killed his boy and fixed things so folks would think robbers done it, and then he'd get Huck's money without having to bother a long time with a lawsuit. People do say he weren't any good to do it. Oh, he's sly, I reckon. If he don't come back for a year, he'll be all right. You can't prove anything on him, you know. Everything will be quieted down then, and he'll walk in Huck's money as easy as nothing. 
Yes, I reckon so, um. I don't see nothing in the way of it. Well, has everybody quit thinking the nigger done it? Oh, no, not everybody. A good many thinks he done it. But they'll get the nigger pretty soon now, and maybe they can scare it out of him. Why, are they after him yet? Well, you're innocent, ain't you? Does three hundred dollars lay around every day for people to pick up? Some folks think the nigger ain't far from here. I'm one of them, but I hain't talked it around. A few days ago, I was talking with an old couple that lives next door in the log shanty, and they happen to say hardly anybody ever goes to that island over yonder they call Jackson's Island. Don't anybody live there, says I? No, nobody, says they. I didn't say any more, but I'd done some thinking. I was pretty near certain I'd seen smoke over there, about the head of the island, a day or two before that. So I says to myself, like as not, that nigger's hiding over there. Anyway, says I, it's worth the trouble to give the place a hunt. I ain't seen any smoke since, so I reckon maybe he's gone, if it was him. But husband's going over to sea, him and another man. He was gone up the river, but he got back today, and I told him as soon as he got here two hours ago. I had got so uneasy I couldn't sit still. I had to do something with my hands, so I took up a needle off the table and went to threading it. My hands shook, and I was making a bad job of it. When the woman stopped talking, I looked up, and she was looking at me pretty curious and smiling a little. I put down the needle and thread and let on to be interested, and I was, too, and says, Three hundred dollars is a power of money. I wish my mother could get it. Is your husband going over there tonight? Oh, yes. He went uptown with the man I was telling you of to get a boat and see if they could borrow another gun. They'll go after midnight. Well, couldn't they see better if they was to wait till daytime? Yes, and couldn't the nigger see better, too? After midnight, he'll likely be asleep, and they can slip around through the woods and hunt up his campfire all the better for the dark, if he's got one. I didn't think of that. The woman kept looking at me pretty curious, and I didn't feel a bit comfortable. Pretty soon she says, What did you say your name was, honey? M Mary Williams. Somehow it didn't seem to me that I said it was Mary before, so I didn't look up. Seemed to me I said it was Sarah, so I felt sort of cornered and was afeard maybe I was looking it too. I wished the woman would say something more. The longer she sat still, the uneasier I was. But now she says, Honey, I thought you said it was Sarah when you first come in. Oh, yes, am I did. Sarah Mary Williams. Sarah's my first name. Some calls me Sarah, some calls me Mary. Oh, that's the way of it. Yes, am I was feeling better then, but I wished I was out of there anyway. I couldn't look up yet. Well, the woman fell to talking about how hard times was and how poor they had to live and how the rats was as free as if they owned the place and so on and so forth, and then I got easy again. She was right about the rats. You see one stick his nose out of a hole in the corner every little while. She said she had to have things handy to throw at them when she was alone, or they wouldn't give her no peace. She showed me a bar of lead twisted up into a knot, and said she was a good shot with it generally, but she wrenched her arm a day or two ago and didn't know whether she could throw true now. But she watched for a chance and directly banged away at a rat, but she missed him wide and said, ouch, it hurt her arm so. Then she told me to try for the next one. I wanted to be getting away before the old man got back, but of course I didn't let on. I got the thing, and the first rat that showed his nose, I let drive. And if he'd have stayed where he was, he'd have been a tolerable sick rat. And she said that was first rate, and she reckoned I would hive the next one. Well, she went and got the lump of lead and fetched it back, and brought along a hank of yarn which she wanted me to help her with. I held up my two hands, and she put the hank over them, 
and went on talking about her and her husband's matters. But she broke off to say, Keep your eye on the rats. You better have the lead in your lap handy. So she dropped a lump into my lap just at that moment, and I clapped with my legs together on it, and she went on talking, but only about a minute. Then she took off the hank and looked me straight in the face, and very pleasant, and says, Come now, what's your real name? <laughs> what, Mum? What's your real name? Is it Bill or Tom or Bob, or what is it? I reckon I shook like a leaf, and I didn't hardly know what to do. But I says, Please to don't poke fun at a poor girl like me, Mum. If I'm in the way here, I'll... No, you won't. Sit down and stay where you are. I ain't going to hurt you, and I ain't going to tell on you nother. You just tell me your secret, and trust me, I'll keep it, and what's more, I'll help you. Sold my old man if you want him to. You see, you're a runaway prentice, that's all. It ain't anything. There ain't no harm in it. You've been treated bad, and you made up your mind to cut. Bless you, child, I wouldn't tell on you. Tell me all about it now, that's a good boy. So I said it wouldn't be no use to try to play it any longer, and I would just make a clean breast and tell her everything, but she mustn't go back on her promise. So then I told her my father and mother was dead, and the law had bound me out to a mean old farmer in the country thirty mile back from the river, and he treated me so bad I couldn't stand it no longer. He went away to be gone a couple of days, and so I took my chance and stole some of his daughter's old clothes and cleared out, and I had been three nights coming the thirty miles. I traveled nights and hid daytimes and slept, and the bag of bread and meat I carried from home lasted me all the way, and I had a plenty. I said I believed my Uncle Abner Moore would take care of me, and so that was why I struck out for this town of Goshen. Goshen, child? This ain't Goshen, this is St. Petersburg. Goshen's ten miles further up the river. Who told you this was Goshen? Why, a man I met at daybreak this morning, just as I was going to turn into the woods for my regular sleep. He told me that when the roads forked, I must take to the right hand, and five mile would fetch me to Goshen. He was drunk, I reckon. He told you just exactly wrong. Well, he did act like he was drunk, but it ain't no matter now. I gotta be moving along. I'll fetch Goshen before daylight. But hold on a minute. I'll put you up a snack to eat. You might want it. So she put me up a snack and says, Say, when a cow's laying down, which end of her gets up first? Answer up prompt now. Don't stop to study over it. Which end gets up first? Well, the hind end, mum. Well, then a horse? The forward end, mum. Which side of a tree does the moss grow on? A north side. If fifteen cows is browsing on a hillside, how many of them eats with their heads pointed the same direction? Well, the whole fifteen, mum. Well, I reckon you have lived in the country. I thought maybe you was trying to hocus me again. What's your real name now? George Peters, mum. Well, try to remember it, George. Don't forget and tell me it's Alexander before you go, and then get out by saying it's George Alexander when I catch you. And don't go about women in that old calico. You do a girl tolerable poor, but you might fool men, maybe. Bless you, child. When you set out to thread a needle, don't hold the thread still and fetch the needle up to it. Hold the needle still and poke the thread at it. That's the way a woman most always does, but a man always does t'other way. And when you throw at a rat or anything, hit yourself up a tiptoe and fetch your hand up over your head as awkward as you can, and miss your rat about six or seven foot. Throw stiff arm from the shoulder like there was a pivot there for it to turn on, like a girl, not from the wrist and elbow with your arm out to one side like a boy. And mind you, when a girl tries to catch anything in her lap, she throws her knees apart. She don't clap them together the way you did when you catch the lump of lead. 
Why, I spotted you for a boy when you was threading the needle, and I can try the other things just to make certain. Now trot along to your uncle, Sarah, Mary, Williams, George, Alexander, Peters, and if you get into trouble, you send word to Miss Judith Loftus, which is me, and I'll do what I can to get you out of it. Keep the river road all the way, and next time you tramp, take shoes and socks with you. The river road's a rocky one, and your feet'll be in a condition when you get to Goshen, I reckon. I went up the bank about fifty yards, and then I doubled on my tracks and slipped back to where my canoe was, a good piece below the house. I jumped in and was off in a hurry. I went upstream far enough to make the head of the island, and then started across. I took off the sunbonnet, for I didn't want no blinders on then. When I was about the middle, I heard the clock begin to strike, so I stops and listens. The sound come faint over the water, but clear. Eleven. When I struck the head of the island, I never waited to blow, though I was most winded, but I shoved right into the timber where my old camp used to be, and started a good fire there on a high and dry spot. Then I jumped in the canoe and dug out for our place a mile and a half below as hard as I could go. I landed and slopped through the timber and up the ridge and into the cavern. There Jim laid, sound asleep on the ground. I roused him out and says, Get up and hump yourself, Jim. There ain't a minute to lose. They're after us. Jim never asked no questions. He never said a word. But the way he worked for the next half an hour showed about how he was scared. By that time, everything we had in the world was on our raft, and she was ready to be shoved out from the willow cove where she was hid. We put out the campfire at the cavern the first thing, and didn't show a candle outside after that. I took the canoe out from the shore a little piece, and took a look, but if there was a boat around, I couldn't see it, for stars and shadows ain't good to see by. Then we got out the raft and slipped along down in the shade, past the foot of the island, dead still, never saying a word. Chapter 12 it must have been close on to one o'clock when we got below the island at last, and the raft did seem to go mighty slow. If a boat was to come along, we was going to take to the canoe and break for the Illinois shore, and it was well a boat didn't come, for we had never thought to put the gun in the canoe, or a fishing line, or anything to eat. We was in rather too much of a sweat to think of so many things. It weren't good judgment to put everything on the raft. If the men went to the island, I just expect they found the campfire I built, and watched it all night for Jim to come. Anyways, they stayed away from us, and if my building the fire never fooled them, it weren't no fault of mine. I played it as low down on them as I could. When the first streak of day began to show, we tied up to a towhead in the big bend on the Illinois side and hacked off cottonwood branches with the hatchet and covered up the raft with them so she looked like there had been a cave-in in the bank there. A towhead is a sandbar that has cottonwoods on it as thick as harrow teeth. We had mountains on the Missouri shore and heavy timber on the Illinois side and the channel was down the Missouri shore at that place, so we weren't afraid of anybody running across us. We laid there all day and watched the rafts and steamboats spin down the Missouri shore, and upbound steamboats fight the big river in the middle. I told Jim all about the time I had jabbering with that woman, and Jim said she was a smart one, and if she was to start after us herself, she wouldn't sit down and watch a campfire. No, sir, she'd fetch a dog. Well, then, I said, why couldn't she tell her husband to fetch a dog? Jim said he bet she did think of it by the time the men was ready to start, and he believed they must have gone uptown to get a dog, and so they lost all that time, or else we wouldn't be here on a towhead sixteen or seventeen mile below the village. No, indeedy, we would be in that same old town again. So I said I didn't care what was the reason they didn't get us, as long as they didn't. When it was beginning to come on dark, we poked our heads out of the cottonwood thicket 
and looked up and down and across. Nothing in sight. So Jim took up some of the top planks of the raft and built a snug wigwam to get under in blazing weather and rainy and to keep the things dry. Jim made a floor for the wigwam and raised it a foot or more above the level of the raft, so now the blankets and all the traps was out of reach of steamboat waves. Right in the middle of the wigwam, we made a layer of dirt about five or six inches deep with a frame around it for to hold it to its place. This was to build a fire on in sloppy weather or chilly. The wigwam would keep it from being seen. We made an extra steering oar, too, because one of the others might get broke on a snag or something. We fixed up a short-forked stick to hang the old lantern on, because we must always light the lantern whenever we see a steamboat coming downstream to keep from getting run over. But we wouldn't have to light it for upstream boats unless we see we was in what they call a crossing, for the river was pretty high yet, very low banks being still a little underwater, so upbound boats didn't always run the channel, but hunted easy water. This second night we run between seven and eight hours, with a current that was making over four mile an hour. We catched fish and talked, and we took a swim now and then to keep off sleepiness. It was kind of solemn, drifting down the big, still river, laying on our backs looking up at the stars, and we didn't ever feel like talking loud, and it weren't often that we laughed, only a little kind of a low chuckle. We had mighty good weather as a general thing, and nothing ever happened to us at all. That night nor the next, nor the next. Every night we passed towns, some of them away up on black hillsides, nothing but just a shiny bed of lights, not a house could you see. The fifth night we passed St. Louis, and it was like the whole world lit up. In St. Petersburg they used to say there was twenty to thirty thousand people in St. Louis, but I never believed it till I see that wonderful spread of lights at two o'clock that still night. There weren't a sound there. Everybody was asleep. Every night now I used to slip ashore towards ten o'clock at some little village and buy ten or fifteen cents worth of meal or bacon or other stuff to eat, and sometimes I lifted a chicken that weren't roosting comfortable and took him along. Pap always said, Take a chicken when you get a chance, because if you don't want him yourself, you can easy find somebody that does, and a good deed ain't ever forgot. I never see Pap when he didn't want the chicken himself, but that is what he used to say anyway. Mornings before daylight, I slipped into cornfields and borrowed a watermelon, or a mushmelon, or a pumpkin, or some new corn, or thing of that kind. Pap always said it weren't no harm to borrow things if you was meaning to pay them back sometime. But the widow said it weren't anything but a soft name for stealing, and no decent body would do it. Jim said he reckoned the widow was partly right and Pap was partly right, so the best way would be for us to pick out two or three things from the list and say we wouldn't borrow them any more. Then he reckoned it wouldn't be no harm to borrow the others. So we talked it over all one night, drifting along down the river, trying to make up our minds whether to drop the watermelons or the cantaloupes or the mushmelons or what. But towards daylight, we got it all settled satisfactory and concluded to drop crab apples and persimmons. We weren't feeling just right before that, but it was all comfortable now. I was glad the way it come out too, because crab apples ain't ever good and the persimmons wouldn't be ripe for two or three months yet. We shot a waterfowl now and then that got up too early in the morning or didn't go to bed early enough in the evening. Take it all around, we lived pretty high. The fifth night below St. Louis, we had a big storm after midnight with a powerful thunder and lightning, and the rain poured down in a solid sheet. We stayed in the wigwam and let the raft take care of itself. When the lightning glared out, we could see a big straight river ahead, and high, rocky bluffs on both sides. By and by, says I, Hello? 
Jim, look yonder. It was a steamboat that had killed herself on a rock. We was drifting straight down for her. The lightning showed her very distinct. She was leaning over with part of her upper deck above water, and you could see every little chimbley guy clean and clear, and a chair by the big bell, with an old slouch hat hanging on the back of it when the flashes come. Well, it being away in the night and stormy, and all so mysterious-like, I felt just the way any other boy would have felt when I see that wreck laying there so mournful and lonesome in the middle of the river. I wanted to get aboard of her and slink around a little and see what there was there. So I says, Let's land on her, Jim. But Jim was dead against it at first. He says, I don't want to go fooling long of no wreck. We's doing blame well, and we better let blame well alone, as the good book says. Like as not, there's a watchman on that wreck. Watchman your grandmother, I says. There ain't nothing to watch but the Texas and the pilot house. And do you reckon anybody's going to risk his life for a Texas and a pilot house such a night as this, when it's likely to break up and wash off down the river any minute? Well, Jim couldn't say nothing to that, so he didn't try. And besides, I says, we might borrow something worth having out of the captain's stateroom. Seagars, I bet you, and cost five cents apiece, solid cash. Steamboat captains is always rich and get sixty dollars a month, and they don't care a cent what a thing costs, you know, as long as they want it. Stick a candle in your pocket. I can't rest, Jim, till we give her a rummaging. Do you reckon Tom Sawyer would ever go by this thing? Not for pie, he wouldn't. He'd call it an adventure. That's what he'd call it. He'd land on that wreck if it was his last act. And wouldn't he throw style into it? Wouldn't he spread himself? Nor nothing. Why, you'd think it was Christopher Columbus discovering kingdom come. I wish Tom Sawyer was here. And Jim, he grumbled a little, but give in. He said we mustn't talk any more than we could help, and then talk mighty low. The lightning showed us the wreck again just in time, and we fetched the starboard derrick and made fast there. The deck was high out here. We went sneaking down the slope of it to Labbert in the dark, towards the Texas, feeling our way slow with our feet and spreading our hands out to fend off the guys, for it was so dark we couldn't see no sign of them. Pretty soon we struck the forward end of the skylight and clumb on to it, and the next step fetched us in front of the captain's door, which was open, and by Jiminy, away down through the Texas Hall we see a light, and all in the same second we seemed to hear low voices in yonder. Jim whispered and said he was feeling powerful sick, and told me to come along. And I says, all right, and was going to start for the raft, but just then I heard a voice wail out and say, Oh, please don't, boys. I swear I won't ever tell. Another voice said pretty loud, It's a lie, Jim Turner. You've acted this way before. You always want more than your share of the truck. And you've always got it, too, because you've swore if you didn't, you'd tell. But this time, you've said it just one time too many. You're the meanest, treacherous hound in this country. By this time, Jim was gone for the raft. I was just a-biling with curiosity. And I says to myself, Tom Sawyer wouldn't back out now, and so I won't either. I'm a-going to see what's going on here. So I dropped on my hands and knees in the little passage and crept aft in the dark till there weren't but one stateroom betwixt me and the cross hall of the Texas. Then and there I see a man stretched on the floor and tied hand and foot and two men standing over him, and one of them had a dim lantern in his hand and the other one had a pistol. This one kept pointing the pistol at the man's head on the floor and saying, 
I'd like to, and I order too, a mean skunk. The man on the floor would shrivel up and say, Oh, please don't, Bill. I ain't ever going to tell. And every time he said that, the man with the lantern would laugh and say, Indeed you ain't. You never said no truer thing than that, you bet you. And once he said, Hear him beg. And yet if we hadn't got the best of him and tied him, he'd have killed us both. And what for? Just for nothing. Just because we stood on our rights. That's what for. But I lay you ain't a gonna threaten nobody anymore, Jim Turner. Put up that pistol, Bill. Bill says, I don't want to, Jake Packard. I'm for killing him. And didn't he kill old Hatfield just the same way? And don't he deserve it? But I don't want him killed. And I've got my reasons for it. Bless your heart for them words, Jake Packard. I'll never forget you long as I live, says the man on the floor, sort of blubbering. Packard didn't take no notice of that, but hung up his lantern on a nail and started towards where I was in the dark and motioned Bill to come. I crawfished as fast as I could about two yards, but the boat slanted so that I couldn't make very good time, so to keep from getting run over and catched, I crawled into a stateroom on the upper side. The man came a-pawing along in the dark, and when Packard got to my stateroom, he says, Here, come in here. And in he come, and Bill after him. But before they got in, I was up in the upper berth, cornered, and sorry I come. Then they stood there with their hands on the ledge of the berth and talked. I couldn't see them, but I could tell where they was by the whiskey they was having. I was glad I didn't drink whiskey, but it wouldn't made much difference anyway, because most of the time... They couldn't have treated me because I didn't breathe. I was too scared. And besides, a body couldn't breathe and hear such talk. They talked low and earnest. Bill wanted to kill Turner. He says, He said he'll tell, and he will. If we was to give both our shares to him now, it wouldn't make no difference after the row and the way we've served him. Sure as you're born, he'll turn state's evidence. Now you hear me. I'm for putting him out of his troubles. So am I, says Packard, very quiet. Blame it, I'd sort of begun to think you wasn't. Well, then that's all right. Let's go and do it. Now hold on a minute. I ain't had my say yet. You listen to me. Shooting's good, but there's quieter ways if the thing's got to be done. But what I say is this. It ain't good sense to go courting around after a halter if you can get at what you're up to in some way that's just as good and at the same time... Don't bring you into no risks. Ain't that so? You bet it is. But how are you going to manage it this time? Well, my idea is this. We'll rustle around and gather up whatever pickings we've overlooked in the staterooms and shove for shore and hide the truck. Then we'll wait. Now I say, it ain't going to be more than two hours before this rack breaks up and washes down the river. See? He'll be drowned and won't have nobody to blame for it but his own self. I reckon that's a considerable sight better than killing of him. I'm unfavorable to killing a man as long as you can get around it. It ain't good sense. It ain't good morals. Ain't I right? Yes, I reckon you are. But suppose she don't break up and wash off. Well, we can wait the two hours anyway and see, can't we? All right, then. Come along. So they started, and I lit out all in a cold sweat and scrambled forward. It was dark as pitch there, but I said in a kind of coarse whisper, Jim! And he answered up, right at my elbow, with a sort of moan, and I says, Quick, Jim, 
It ain't no time for fooling around and moaning. There's a gang of murderers in yonder. And if we don't haunt up their boat and set her drifting down the river so these folks can't get away from the wreck, there's one of them going to be in a bad fix. But if we find their boat, we can put all of them in a bad fix, for the sheriff will get them. Quick, hurry! I'll hunt the labbard side, you hunt the starboard. You start at the raft and... Oh, my lordy, lordy. Raft? There ain't no raft no more. She done broke loose and gone. Uh, and here we is. Chapter 13 Well, I catch my breath and most fainted. Shut up on a wreck with such a gang as that? But it weren't no time to be sentimentering. We'd got to find that boat now. Had to have it for ourselves. So we went a-quaking and shaking down the starboard side, and slow work it was, too. Seemed a week before we got to the stern. No sign of a boat. Jim said he didn't believe he could go any further. So scared he hadn't hardly any strength left, he said. But I said, come on. If we get left on this wreck, we are in a fix, sure. So on we prowled again. We struck for the stern of the Texas and found it, and then scrambled along forwards on the skylight, hanging on from shutter to shutter, for the edge of the skylight was in the water. When we got pretty close to the cross-hall door, there was the skiff, sure enough. I could just barely see her. I felt ever so thankful. In another second, I would have been aboard of her. But just then, the door opened. One of the men stuck his head out only about a couple of foot from me, and I thought I was gone. But he jerked it in again and says, Heave that blame lantern out of sight, Bill. He flung a bag of something into the boat, and then got in himself and sat down. It was Packard. Then Bill, he come out and got in. Packard says in a low voice, All ready. Shove off. I couldn't hardly hang on to the shutters, I was so weak. But Bill says, Hold on. Did you go through him? No, didn't you? No. So he's got his share of the cash yet. Well, then come along. No use to take truck and leave money. Say, won't he suspicion what we're up to? Maybe he won't. We got to have it anyway. Come along. So they got out and went in. The door slammed too because it was on the careen side. And in a half a second I was in the boat and Jim come tumbling after me. I was out with my knife and cut the rope and away we went. We didn't touch an oar. We didn't speak nor whisper nor hardly even breathe. We went gliding swift along, dead silent past the tip of the paddle box and past the stern. Then in a second or two more... We was a hundred yards below the wreck, and the darkness soaked her up, every last sign of her, and we was safe and noted. When we was three or four hundred yards downstream, we see the lantern show like a little spark at the Texas door for a second, and we knowed by that that the rascals had missed their boat and was beginning to understand that they was in just as much trouble now as Jim Turner was. Then Jim manned the oars, and we took out after our raft. Now was the first time that I begun to worry about the men, I reckon I hadn't had time to before. I begun to think how dreadful it was, even for murderers, to be in such a fix. I says to myself, There ain't no telling, but I might come to be a murderer myself yet. And then how would I like it? So I says to Jim, The first light we see will land a hundred yards below it, or above it, in a place where it's a good hiding place for you in the skiff, and then I'll go and fix up some kind of a yarn and get somebody to go for that gang and get them out of their scrape so they can be hung when their time comes. But that idea was a failure, for pretty soon it begun to storm again, and this time worse than ever. The rain poured down, and never a light showed, everybody in bed, I reckon. 
We boomed along down the river watching for lights and watching for our raft. After a long time, the rain let up, but the clouds stayed, and the lightning kept whimpering, and by and by a flash showed us a black thing ahead, floating, and we made for it. It was the raft, and mighty glad was we to get aboard of it again. We seen a light now away down to the right on shore, so I said I would go for it. The skiff was half full of plunder which that gang had stole there on the wreck. We hustled it onto the raft in a pile, and I told Jim to float along down and show a light when he judged he had gone about two mile and keep it burning till I come. Then I manned my oars and shoved for the light. As I got down towards it, three or four more showed, up on a hillside. It was a village. I closed in above the shore light and laid on my oars and floated. As I went by it, I see it was a lantern hanging on the jackstaff of a double-hull ferry boat. I skimmed around for the watchman, a-wondering whereabouts he slept, and by and by I found him roosting on the bits forward, with his head down between his knees. I gave his shoulder two or three little shoves and begun to cry. He stirred up in a kind of startlish way, but when he sees it was only me, he took a good gap and stretch and says, Hello? What's up? Well, don't cry, bub. What's the trouble? Why well, says, Pap and ma'am and sis and... Then I broke down. He says, Oh, dang it now, don't take on so. We all has to have our troubles, and this will come out all right. What's the matter with him? There, there, are you the watchman of the boat? Yes, he says, kind of pretty well satisfied like. I'm the captain, and the owner, and the mate, and the pilot, and watchman, and head deckman, and sometimes I'm the freight and passengers. I ain't as rich as old Jim Hornback and can't be so blame generous and good to Tom, Dick, and Harry as what he is and slam around money the way he does, but I've told him a many a time I wouldn't trade places with him, for, says I, a sailor's life's the life for me, and I'm derned if I'd live two mile out of town, where there ain't nothing ever going on, not for all his spondulics, and as much more on top of it, says I. I broke in and says, They're in an awful pack of trouble, and... Who is? Why, Pap and Ma'am and Sis and Miss Hooker. And if you take your ferry boat and go up there... Up where? Where are they? On the wreck. What wreck? Why, there ain't but one. What? You don't mean the Walter Scott? Yes. Good land. What are they doing there, for gracious sake? Well, they didn't go there a purpose. I bet they didn't. Why, great goodness, there ain't no chance for them if they don't get off mighty quick. Why... How in the nation did they ever get into such a scrape? Well, easy enough. Miss Hooker was a-visiting up there to the town. Yes, Booth's Landing. Go on. She was a-visiting there at Booth's Landing, and just in the edge of the evening she started over with her nigger woman in the horse ferry to stay all night at her friend's house. Miss Whatchamacaller, I disremember her name. And they lost their steering oar, and swung around and went a-floating down stern first about two mile, and saddlebags on the wreck, and the ferryman and the nigger woman and the horses was all lost, but Miss Hooker, she made a grab and got aboard the wreck. Well, about an hour after dark, we come along down in our trading scow, and it was so dark we didn't notice the wreck till we was right on it, and so we saddlebags. But all of us was saved but Bill Whipple, and oh, he was the best creditor. I most wished it had been me, I do. Oh, my George, it's the beatenest thing I ever struck, and then what did you all do? Well... We hollered and took on, but it's so wide there we couldn't make nobody hear. So Pap said somebody got to get ashore and get some help somehow. I was the only one that could swim, so I made a dash for it. And Miss Hooker said, 
If I didn't strike help sooner, come here and hunt up her uncle, and he'd fix the thing. I made the land about a mile below, and been fooling along ever since trying to get people to do something. But they said, What, in such a night, in such a current? There ain't no sense in it. Go for the steam ferry. Now, if you'll go and... By Jackson, I'd like to, and blame it. I don't know, but I will. But who in the dang nations are gonna pay for it? Do you reckon your pap? Why, that's all right. Miss Hooker, she told me particular that her Uncle Hornback... Great guns! Is he her uncle? Looky here. You break for that light over yonder way, and turn out west when you get there. And about a quarter of a mile out, you'll come to the tavern. Tell him to dart you out to Jim Hornback's, and he'll foot the bill. And don't you fool around any, because he'll want to know the news. Tell him I'll have his niece all safe before he can get to town. Hump yourself now. I'm a-going up around the corner here to roust out my engineer. I struck for the light, but as soon as he turned the corner, I went back and got into my skiff and bailed her out, and then pulled up shore in the easy water about six hundred yards and tucked myself in among some wood boats, for I couldn't rest easy till I could see the ferry boat start. But take it all around... I was feeling rather comfortable on account of taking all this trouble for that gang, for not many would have done it. I wish the widow knowed about it. I judge she would be proud of me for helping these rapscallions, because rapscallions and deadbeats is the kind the widow and good people takes the most interest in. Well, before long here comes the wreck, dim and dusky, sliding along down. A kind of cold shiver went through me, and then I struck out for her. She was very deep, and I see in a minute... There weren't much chance for anybody being alive in her. I pulled all around her and hollered a little, but there weren't any answer, all dead still. I felt a little bit heavy-hearted about the gang, but not much, for I reckon if they could stand it, I could. Then here comes the ferry boat, so I shoved for the middle of the river on a long downstream slant, and when I judged I was out of eye reach, I laid on my oars and looked back and see her go and smell around the wreck for Miss Hooker's remainders, because the captain would know her Uncle Hornback would want them. And then pretty soon the ferryboat give it up and went for the shore, and I laid into my work and went a-booming down the river. It did seem a powerful long time before Jim's light showed up, and when it did show, it looked like it was a thousand mile off. By the time I got there, the sky was beginning to get a little gray in the east, so we struck for an island and hid the raft and sunk the skiff and turned in and slept like dead people. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.